You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 429 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. I was a guest on an episode of the Rubber Duck Dev Show with the hosts, Chris and Creston. Rubber Duck Dev Show is a weekly stream that is broadcasted on both YouTube and Twitch on Wednesdays at 8 o'clock Eastern time. Check out the show notes to subscribe. Can I just tell you that they really made a Rubyist feel welcome? They did a great job interviewing me. We talk about how I became a co-host of this very podcast and how complicated project management can get. On to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Kristen. And I'm Brittany. And we are really excited to have Brittany here. Thank you so much for coming on and taking time out to be with us tonight. Absolutely. It's an honor. Yeah. So we're going to have a nice chat, talk about some fun stuff. But before we get into that, we can review. Kristen, how was your week? A lot of stuff going on, but little things here or there. Unfortunately, nothing really interesting to share. I mean, working with some clients on some Rails upgrades, some other clients on some performance optimizations, and then yet another client helping them deal with a about to run out of integers in the primary key. So like Rails applications... Before, I don't know if it was sometime in Rails 5, I think, the primary keys were created with integers, which run out after 2 billion rows. So basically, they need to transition it to a big int and do it, hopefully, without downtime. So, <laughs> 2 billion rows? There's downtime. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's a specific way you can do it to have the downtime be potentially fractions of a second. So. That's what I'm helping them do. Whoa, Mr. Scaling Rails. <laughs> or Scaling Postgres. Yeah, that's what I, that's, I English. <laughs> it's all the same. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Rails, Postgres, Ruby, that's dot but, net. It's, oh, ow. That's pretty much for me. So I got to solve one of my pet peeves this week. I mean, if anybody's watched the show and knows what I feel about testing, how important that is. And if you don't test, we'll fight. But the platform repo I was working on, we have a huge test library, which is great. But the problem was on Travis, which is what we use for our CI, we would constantly have flaky failing tests. They would always run locally, but on the CI, they would fail. And they got into the habit of, well, we know these certain tests fail, so we'll just ignore those. Would they literally do something to ignore so they wouldn't run or they just it still shows an error and they just said i don't see it i'm going to be blind which way they go through and say well yeah it's this code line and this test and this test and this test we know those fail so we're just going to ignore those there aren't any new ones showing up so we're good okay so i spent some time pulling my hair out what little bit i have left and it was that was driving me nuts so this week i finally had the time to go in there and get everything green and it was just beautiful. I loved it. What was the most common problem? Was it like an object getting instantiated and changed by another test? Because I've seen that happen. There were a couple of those, but the most common problem was ordering issues. Oh, yeah. Especially when you're testing JSON responses for APIs and stuff, especially when you're using Cucumber to do it. So we've got a Cucumber set and an RSpec set, and the Cucumber set is split into like 12 different buckets that it runs in types of tests so each one of those or most of those had some errors in them and almost all of them with a few exceptions were ordering things so we're currently tackling that as well at my work we use circle ci and we had a retro about two weeks ago where we talked about our biggest developer pain points and one of them was our ci and it's literally the same thing that you're talking about except Creston, we took it a step further we marked those tests as flaky and they get run in a separate test group. And so what we've been doing is when you have a failure across any of them, you rerun the test suite, which for us can take up to 30 minutes long. And so we have someone who's devoted right now to just parallelizing our test suite, but it's been easier on the Ruby front, but harder on the Cypress front. So we're trying to figure out how we can bring that all down, but also questioning those flaky tests that we just rerun over and over again. Are they actually testing anything? So I had a couple of those too. Whether or not yeah. they need to just bye bye. There was a couple of tests that I just went and got rid of because I looked at them and said, "This isn't even testing anything. This is like testing one plus one equals two. So why am I testing that?" 
And there were these big, huge, long tests with stuff that it basically hard-coded the input and checked that the output was the same as the hard-coded input. And I'm like, that's pointless. And it it's flaky. Flaking, so, and it was flaky. Yeah. No. But yeah, it just having failing tests in your CI, it's disconcerting. And it also it causes is. bad habits and sloppiness and stuff like that. It is too, depending on how you're deploying your app too. We're currently on Heroku, but we're moving to AWS. So you see throughout our pipeline, you see the green check marks. And when you hit promote to production, you want to see green. Mm-hmm. And even if you see a little bit red in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, my code didn't change the login screen. Right. Cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> you want to see green. You want that right. feeling of all green. We all know that feeling of being in console and just seeing all those green dots. Oh, yeah. It's, so it's just beautiful. Oh, it's like a Rembrandt. So how was your week, Brittany? Oh, it was good. We had a big feature launch. So I'm an engineering manager at Texas. We had a big feature launch on Monday that seems to have gone well. And then they did a live webinar on, <laughs> yes, today with that code. So that's always slightly terrifying. But because we had such a good team QAing and tests, we felt good about it. And the webinar went well. We've been tackling those CI issues. And then One thing that I've been rolling out is, you know, as engineering manager, I tend to be the first person who reviews all bugs. So it keeps me definitely technical because I'm hopping into the logs and trying to figure out the age old question. Is it front end or back end? Which is sometimes (laughs) the hardest question because our teams are very much separated at Texas. You're either on the front end or the back end. So I do a lot of that work, but I'm rolling out a program so that more of our developers will be the ones looking out for those bugs and assigning on a weekly basis. So some of those developers that I've chosen to do that project, I had them slack me and tell me three areas of expertise that each developer on the team knew about. And some of them were so good and some of them were wildly wrong, which is good. (laughs) Like, it's good to know what people are good at and what people have built because I think it it inspires good conversation within the team. But sure. it's kind of a good homework assignment. Creston, I know that you work on your own a lot, but like it could be an interesting exercise of like, who built that? Who can I ask questions to? Right. Also, this past weekend, I knew that I hadn't been writing as much Ruby as I used to. And as someone who deeply loves Ruby, I wanted to get back into it, but not have it be related to work. And so I don't know if you two have checked out leakcode.com for coding exercises. I was looking for somewhere that I could just do fun coding katas. And so I joined that and it was actually to me, that's my version of video games. (laughs) It's fun to do the problems and then go into the discussion and see how a Rubyist might've solved it in one line and then be absolutely appalled that you would never put that in production. Right. But I think that's kind of the joy of writing Ruby. Oh yeah, for sure. All right. Well, cool. So we are going to dig into some, hopefully interviewing you, although I know you are kind of a professional interviewer, so this could turn around, but that's cool. We're just going to have a comfy chat here. First thing is, for those of you who don't know, this is Brittany Martin. She is the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast. That is her big claim to ginormous worldwide fame. And we're going to just chat and hang out and have fun. If you are watching and you want to ask questions, feel free to put them in the chat. We bring people on so that everybody has a chance to ask questions and and be involved. So tell us a little bit about your history with the Ruby on Rails podcast. Yeah, happy to. It's a complicated and weird one. So (laughs) buckle up. (laughs) The 555 Ruby on Rails podcast has been around for about 12 years. And so it's gone through the hands of a couple hosts. And at one point, Kyle Daigle, this was back in 2017, was hosting the show solo. And he decided that he was going to bring on a rotation of recurring co-hosts. And so I must have been ambitious that day because I was like, at this point, I had been writing Ruby code for about four or five years. And so I reached out on Twitter and I was like, hey, I'm interested in joining as a recurring co-host. And Kyle was like, great, I'm going to bring you on. We recorded this great episode and then it didn't publish for five months. And I was like, oh no, the dream is over. And the reason, yeah, it was was kind of wild. So I was like, okay, well, I did this thing. I could feel good about it. Good thing I didn't tell anybody about it, but (laughs) just kind of 
kind of went silent. And so as it turns out, Kyle was working at GitHub. I believe that was right around the time that Microsoft acquired GitHub. If I were to line up the timelines right, something was going on with Kyle. Kyle's great. He just got really busy. And so then he came back. He's like, you know what? We're still going to publish this episode. I'm back. And I'm like, great. And so we started this recurring rotation. So every month or so I would come on, I would bring updates for Kyle and he and I would chat. I had a terrible microphone, terrible setup. We made it work. And so he was editing it all and putting it out there. So I was very uninvolved other than just being on the show and producing content. Fast forward to 2018, Kyle got busy again. And I reached out to him and I said, Hey, do you still want this podcast? Because I would be interested in taking it. And he's like, sure. And he gave me the keys to the kingdom in 2018. So I took over. So I then became the main host of the five by five Ruby on rails podcast. And then September 26, 2018 was my first episode and 200 episodes later, I'm still here, (laughs) which is pretty cool. And then last year I wanted to take the podcast independent. I wasn't sure how long the five by five network was going to be around. If you're not familiar with the five by five network, it was kind of like the NPR for nerds. <laughs> and so just a lot of really fun shows. But at one point, it wasn't really Dan's like main focus. Dan had built Fireside as a podcasting platform. And so I asked him if I could take the show independent. He was totally cool with it. And so I needed to come up with a real clever name for the new podcast. And I settled on the Ruby on Rails podcast because over the years, that's what everybody always called it. They always forgot the five by five part, which was kind of convenient. So you go with branding. Did I mention I used to be in marketing? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So I took the podcast independent and it was rebranded, but I kind of stole from Kyle's idea because some of my very favorite podcasts, and I want to hear the podcasts you two listen to, have recurring co-hosts. I like to hear those updates very much like the top of your show. And so I enlisted Brian Mariani, who is a recruiter at Mirror Placement. And those are my top listened to episodes. Everyone is obsessed with how Rails hiring is going, which Hmm. is really fun. So I highly recommend talking to Brian if you need another guest on the show. Oh, for sure. Gemma Isroff, who is a developer on the CRuby team at Shopify, and then Nick Schwatterer, who is also now on the Ruby infrastructure team at Shopify, but he's gone through several different roles over the years. And he was actually my first episode as a host of the show. And so he came on as co-host. So I rotate through those three, but then I also do a lot of interviews as well. I am very bent on bringing on people to the show who have never been on a podcast before. So... Usually at the top of the show, people are very nervous. They're like, what do I say? And I'm like, is this your first podcast? And they're like, yes. Should I keep that a secret? I plead with them. I'm like, please say very early on the show that this is your first podcast. So people will be gentle on you. Speaking (laughs) of, this is my first Twitch stream. So please be very gentle. (laughs) But you're doing great. I mean, you got the green screen and everything. You are pro. Try to be a professional here. You know, like if you're going to do it, you do it big. That's right. Can't go home. So you got to go big. That's right. There you go. (laughs) So that's the history of the Ruby on Rails podcast. So I'm very appreciative that it's still going. And I appreciate every single listener that has hung in there through all the audio issues and me hiring an editor last year, which was the greatest decision of my life. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, 200 episodes, that's hanging in there. Yeah. I mean, we've learned a lot of things. We just topped 50 and that takes a lot out of you. Honey Badger has been a longtime sponsor of the Ruby on Rails podcast, and we are seriously grateful. What's Honey Badger? Glad you asked. Do you have to keep your production online even when you'd rather be coding? Monitoring, like web development, can be complicated. There are tons of tools and techniques, but you just want to know that your app is up and that your customers are happy. Whether your team is large or small, you don't want to be stuck watching charts or tailing logs all day to make sure nothing is going wrong. When your customers encounter a problem, you need clear, actionable intelligence, not walls of charts and reams of logs. Honey Badger is the application health monitoring tool built for you, the developer who cares about a quality product and happy customers. To dive into all of this, head on over to honeybadger.io. It's all about consistency, right? So you two have probably decided like, we're gonna do this every Wednesday at eight o'clock Eastern, rain or shine. 
this is going to happen. And for me, it's almost the exact same pattern. Every Wednesday at eight o'clock AM Eastern, I published an episode yeah. and there are times that I have really brought it down to the wire to the point where listeners <laughs> just have no idea that I'm recording on Tuesday night, <laughs> but <laughs> I like to have a couple in the can just so that I can take a couple weeks to relax in between. Yep. That is a little bit of a benefit of the pre-recorded stuff as opposed to the live stuff. We have to be sitting in the seat every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. And there's stuff that life happens. Of course, we take time off during holidays or certain things. Yeah, It's interesting you say that. So my other podcast or show or whatever you want to call it, the Scaling Postgres, I just did the 223rd episode. I don't do any interviews. It's basically curating content. So I'd like to be able to have stuff in the can. But I don't know what I'm going to talk about until I look on the weekend what content's been generated. So there's no way for me to like pre-prep stuff. So I feel like I've, maybe we're doing this on hard mode. We're doing a live show for this one. <laughs> and I have to wait for content to be produced for the second one. I think you are doing this on hard mode, which probably <laughs> means that you're ready for a podcast. It would probably be very easy for you going the reverse way in the content. But I hear you though, because there are times where I have a couple episodes recorded and then something really exciting happens. And I'm like, oh shoot. <laughs> like now it's going to have to wait a couple weeks until it gets out there. And there are times that I will shuffle episodes around just because I have a couple interviews in queue and they can wait. And if something really exciting happens, you know, you don't want to put out content there that's going to expire very quickly. You don't know. And I honestly, I think there's been a lot of exciting stuff happening within the Ruby community lately. Yeah, there has. And timeliness is important. I mean, if you've got regular viewers or listeners, they want the tea, man. I mean, they got to have it. So I get that. And it's kind of the same for us. A lot of times at the end of our shows, we'll tell you what's coming next week. Most of the time, we don't know yet what's coming next week. So it's going to be a mystery show because <laughs> we, we have to wait and see what happens during the week to say, OK, this will be a good topic. Well, or, but that's still on us that just things get so busy. Yeah. Like, oh, what are we going to do to come up with, you know. <laughs> so I fell into this really weird trap and I refuse to get out of it. And I'd love your take on it. So for the entire history of the Ruby on Rails podcast, at the very top of the episode, we have always said this is episode and then the number. Do you know how many times that has bitten me in the foot? <laughs> I will decide that it's going to be this episode number as we go to record it. And then... I shuffle those episodes around. And so then what I end up having to do is splice out the, this is episode 427 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I have to take that <laughs> and, and swap it out in different episodes. And when I say me, I mean my editor. So I really try to be consistent. And you think that if I just cut that line out and didn't have an episode number, then you know it would make things easier, but it's tradition. And I feel like I have to do it. So, yeah, well, I'm kind of glad we I didn't start that tradition. We just put a date on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I recommend not doing that. Date's the way to go. Well, yeah. Now, and, you, is yeah. it ever fun for you to name the episode? Because oh, we do. I mean, I put a title on there, but I'm usually doing that like Wednesday mornings. I'll put the thumbnails together and that's where I title the episode. And then I put the titles in for Twitch and YouTube. But I don't decide on a title until that morning because... Sometimes we have changed what we're going to talk about kind of at the last minute. So I don't want to get too like last week. Like last week. <laughs> I don't want to get too far ahead. And it, you know, it only takes five minutes to generate thumbnails and stuff. So there's no reason to rush it. But yeah. And then I can just put a date on it and the title of the episode and be done with it. Plus, I don't have to remember numbers because if it's higher than 10, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a dark secret in case you haven't checked because I actually run the website and publish to the podcast. And so, so Chris basically does the live component and I do kind of like the after show prep and I convert everything to episode numbers <laughs> because that's there what the podcasts go. want. And yeah. when you're publishing it, so I'm like, okay, well, this is, we're about to hit our 50th episode. What I like about that is that you can more easily celebrate the wins or the successes that, Hey, we're about to publish like next, where's this episode? I can't even remember now. Like, is this episode 50 or not? 
I can't even remember. That's now. why I don't pay attention to that. I, just, I can't remember. <laughs> so I have a question for you all. So I am very bent on just growing out the Ruby community content space. I want to see more podcasts. I want to see more content. Like how can we get more creative? And I feel that this show is very creative. Do you feel that you're part of that Ruby content initiative? So, I mean, that's kind of what I wanted to be. What I was seeing was that there were a number of podcasts, but there wasn't much in the way of vidcast going on, at least not live ones. Right. And uh, yeah, not live ones. Right. Where audience could interact and talk. So I thought, well, it would probably be good for us to be able to have a live thing where we could start to interact with the audience and actually have a little more back and forth. Not that I have anything against podcast formats or pre-recorded stuff. I think that's an important part of it too. But I just saw, I guess, a niche that we could plug into that wasn't going to kind of compete with very established podcasts because that was just a mountain climb I didn't want to (laughs) do. So I was on the RailsConf panel, so as a speaker on the panel, and then I moderated the RailsConf at home session, which was so fun. And that was really my first experience of having a live audience that I could interact with and get questions from. And in some ways, it's extremely nerve wracking, but it's also great for content because it really can take the conversation in some weird space that you never anticipated and you get genuine answers because for my show, at least I really try to pre-prep my guests as to what we're going to talk about. Do we end up somewhere totally weird and different? Absolutely. And those are some of my favorite episodes, but it's guaranteeing that people are going to get those questions ahead of time is how I get a lot of first time speakers to be on the podcast. But I totally get the allure of having those listeners there to ask questions, but you also have to be prepared if they're quiet and shy. And the worst is after an episode where someone comes up to you and you're like, I had a question, but I was too nervous to ask. And I'm like, no, it was such a good question. And then I convinced them to be on the show, but it is an interesting dynamic. I used to do a lot of video game streaming and I developed a lot of really good friendships just from the chat and that dynamic of interaction. And I said, you know, I really would like to have that in a programming environment, the dev environment, because I like dev and project management. And that was a good experience. Like the girl that did the, all the artwork for this show is a girl in Australia that I met through streaming. We've become friends and she's an amazing artist. And I never would have had that relationship if we weren't streaming and doing the live stuff. So I'm kind of hoping to build that kind of dynamic here as well, because I think relationships are important, especially after the past two years of everybody being locked up in their caves. It's so funny that you say that because I have a controversial feel on that. So I used to always be on the go prior to the pandemic. I was playing roller derby. I was a fitness instructor on the side. I was doing a bunch of crap. So like I was on the road constantly. I was always running around and I feel that forcing myself to be at home a little bit and being comfortable with that has actually enabled me to strengthen my relationships within the Ruby community, because then I was able to attend meetups remotely meetups. I never would have been able to go to. WNB, the women non-binary meetup group was formed during then. And that is my favorite, my favorite community to be able to talk to in real time about Ruby. So I totally get where you're coming from, Chris. And returning to conferences was really exciting, but I'm also kind of digging the at-home thing. So Oh, I love the at-home thing. But I think this is a good way to build relationships. Like if we didn't have this show, I never would have talked to you probably. I never would have talked to Andrew. I never would be talking to Colin or Aaron. Colin, Aaron, and Andrew talk to everybody. Well, I mean, (laughs) true, but I never would have met them to be able to talk to them. But the show gave me a reason to reach because I'm severely introverted. But the show gave me a reason to reach out to people and say, hey, we'd like to come have a chat with you. That I totally agree with. There are times that I have literally been shaking going into an interview because that person has been my absolute freaking hero. I do not care about celebrities whatsoever, but you see me at a conference and I see a Ruby celebrity and a Ruby <laughs> celebrity is just anybody who I think is a badass. 
I get really nervous and sweaty. And that person probably just is a normal person, but I find that stuff really exciting. And there are still some people in the Ruby community. I have not reached out to interview because I'm still that nervous. So yeah, I agree. Aaron, like definitely guilty. (laughs) Yeah. And you kind of forget as you read all these people and you read about them and you see their picture on some blog posts and stuff, you start thinking, my gosh, they're like superstars. I can't reach out and talk to them. And you get intimidated by Twitter and you get intimidated by all the stuff, but then you you end up in a situation like this. And this dynamic is a lot less intimidating for people to get together and talk than to actually be in the same room. So it, it seems like a lot more comfortable way, at least for me, to meet people. Talking about Ruby content, we're Rubyists, Chris and I, and the name of our show, I think is awesome, Rubber Duck Dev Show, but Ruby's not in it. So I wonder if we've kind of hurt ourselves at all, not having Ruby in it. Chris, have you ever felt that at all? I mean, because I know the reason why we chose this, we wanted something a little bit more generic so we can talk about all sorts of topics from project management to testing that is not related to a language. I would say the number two most listened to Ruby podcast is the bike shed and the word Ruby is nowhere near that. I definitely took that into consideration whenever I was rebranding the show, but you know, Aaron's on the chat right here and his podcast is named framework friends and the word rails or Laravel are near to be found. But <laughs> I think having a good tagline and I think you've done a really good job within the website and your metadata is the way to do it. But also like, I feel like Ruby Weekly is really the unlock for that. So I don't know if you've been featured in Ruby Weekly yet, but, you know, reach out to Ruby Weekly. They're always looking for content and say, hey, by the way, I don't know if you've checked this out, but we actually are quite Ruby focused on this specific episode. We think this one's really great. When I was teaching bootcamp students, so a long time ago, I am a bootcamp learned Rubyist and I'm very proud of that. I also mentored students. And so I would have them write out articles and then I would help them write emails to Peter Cooper at Ruby Weekly (laughs) to convince him to publish those articles. And at the time they were just so excited to have someone pushing to them as opposed to them having to pull these, this content out of Twitter, they were very appreciative. So no, I think the name of the podcast is fantastic. And we talked about this in the pre-show, right for merchandising. (laughs) 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 Well, one can only hope. This episode is brought to you by AppSignal. Most of you probably already know our newest sponsor, AppSignal, because they've been around since 2013. With AppSignal, you can monitor your Ruby apps from A to Z, Error tracking, performance insights, server metrics, uptime, custom dashboards, you name it, they have it. AppSignal works smoothly out of the box. Installation takes only a few minutes and works for all popular Ruby frameworks. It automatically instruments and creates beautiful dashboards for Sidekick, ActiveJob, and other integrations. Visit appsignal.com slash ROR podcast for more information. As a listener of the Ruby on Rails podcast, you get a 10% discount and a box of sweet treats. That's appsignal.com slash ROR podcast. Thank you so much, AppSignal, for sponsoring the show. So one of the things that I was really interested in talking to you about is I know that you've kind of transitioned into a management role recently. And I was curious if, because I'm a big project management geek, I love the project management process and the tools and the just the people interaction and the teamwork and stuff. Moving from a engineering role to a management role, has that changed any of your perceptions of project management? Yo, that's such a good question. Because before I joined Texas, so I've been at Texas for almost two years now, I was at a very small nonprofit in Pittsburgh for five years as the lead web developer. And I always kind of have to laugh at that title. There was two web developers and I was not the lead of the other one. I will forever, you know, hold on to that title. It looks good on LinkedIn, but it's kind of a lie. I was the backend developer at that place. And so we kind of were using a sprint cycle. So it was like a very lightweight, it was agile with the lowercase a, I would say at that place. And so I had some appreciation for it, but with two developers, like you, you really can manage that pretty well. So coming to Texas, they use a Kanban process. And so that's been a learning curve for me, but I quite like it. 
because the developers have control over their prioritization and being able to choose what tickets they're going to work on. Now, the thing that I'm currently tackling is as we grow out the team, the tough part is estimates because it's no longer acceptable to be like, we'll let you know when it's done. Now people want to know exactly when it's going to be done. So if you have any thoughts around that, I'm interested. And I'm curious like how bought in you are to an agile process or whatever you use. Well, first off, one of the things that I've learned is that there is no silver bullet process. It has to be adjusted to the team and the project that you're working on. So it's good to know all of these processes, the book learning, so that you can take the bits from them and put them together to make the right system for this team. But there's just no silver bullet one. So I like Agile as a concept, but capital A Agile, I have never done as the books do. Yeah. There's always one part or the other that just isn't going to work in this situation. Is it weird that I want to get certified as a scrum master just to say that? Not at all. I mean, it just sounds kind of cool. I almost want to see what the process is because it's not that agile is like a religion. Maybe it is, but to some people, I I guess to some people it is. I mean, it would almost be kind of fun to go undercover and just like see that world because people do take it really seriously. And I just can't imagine a world where that would be my only job just because I do so many things, but I work at a startup. And so I've never really had that like big corporate experience. You work for a very big company, right? So like there are people who probably are solely devoted to the project management process. Right. I grew up in small businesses, so I learned a lot of that from the necessity of having to, you know, when I started growing the teams at the small businesses, I had to figure out how to manage them because we didn't have enough hats in the building to be a project manager. So you learn that stuff. And then when I got started working in the large corporate environment, a lot of those lessons translated really well to hey, we've got a much bigger team and we're not doing a real good job of organizing things here. Here's some ways we can help this. So, Do you have a favorite project management tool? I don't know that I have a favorite one. I have some that I very much dislike. A lot of people, what I've learned is even in big corporations, there are a lot of people who do project management in Excel. And that flabbergasted me. (laughs) I will tell you that most of the departments at my company do do that. We don't in engineering, but it is incredible how many times people are like, oh, let me share this Google sheet with you. And I'm like, oh, no, this needs (laughs) to be translated into a ticket. (laughs) This this is just not a trackable thing. And I think that to your point, Excel is like a comfort. It is a blanket, isn't it? People are just so comfortable with it. Well, it's the hammer and the nail. I've learned how to use this hammer, so I'm going to use it to beat everything. Well, I'm going to turn every problem into a nail. I don't care what it takes. That's going to be a nail. I have gotten UX designs done in Excel before. I have. Like, it is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it can be done. It It can be done. But that's not a world I want to live in. No. Now, what's your take on whether or not developers should be able to know far down the line what they're going to be working on, or should you give them the space to only think about the thing that they're working on now? Yes and yes. Okay. So I would imagine there's some, (laughs) I imagine that there's some that want to know what the path is Mm -hmm. because sometimes maybe they just want to get comfortable with, all right, well, next week I'm going to be working on this. And then down the line, we're going to be doing this. And Some of them may want to know that so that they can incorporate, maybe they like knowing that because that may inform or adjust how they're doing things today. Whereas I bet some are just like, give me the task, do the task. All right, I'm done. Like you said, I think it has a lot to do with personalities. There are people that just, I just want to put the blinders on and do this thing. I want to figure out this problem and that's all I want to think about. Most people that I've run into in my career have been, and this is how I think of it. I want to know where the finish line is, but don't tell me how to get there. So I want to be able to have some autonomy to figure out what are the priorities? How do I get there? Which thing should I work on first? How should I put this together? Who should I reach out to, to work things? But I want to know what the finish line is so that I can make sure that I'm rowing the boat in the right direction. Cause I might be doing something really, really cool that has absolutely no benefit to the final project. 
It's so true. And as someone who has newly taken up rowing, I love your analogy. (laughs) Really quite terrible at rowing, but I love that analogy. And I like what you said too, about who should I be reaching out to in order to get this project done? Because that's something that I'm really trying to work on as an engineering manager. I love to have control. And I love to be the grease between the wheels and I love to keep things moving, but I'm really trying to work towards not always being that person and give the developers the autonomy to work with other people within the organization. And so you're right. It's having those really clear requirements so that the developers can get to that place. But I think I struggle too. like, you know, our developers will see easy wins And they'll message me and they'll be like, Hey, should I like knock this out? Like I see this like win that I can take. And the answer is always yes. It's just knowing that's an easy win and it's not going to cause a regression is always a question there, but you want them to get those quick wins because I've noticed long running projects drain a developer out. No matter how exciting the project is, you have to give them hope that there is something at the end of the tunnel. And that's why I think kind of sprint based agile stuff is really good because at the end of a week or two weeks or whatever your sprint is, usually they're a week or two weeks. I've got a thing. It's not the finish line, but it's a thing and it means something and it can and be it used. And it does something. Right. And it works as opposed to not working for months. Right. Yeah. As opposed to, you know. Finding out you built the wrong thing. Right. And, it's a few months. and that's part of what burned me out is because I was climbing Mount Everest and then had to climb K2 and then had to climb in the Himalayas. And then I was constantly mountain climbing and never getting to the peaks. And that's just exhausting. And you have to have these broken out things, which is one of the reasons I like Agile so much is this concept of story-based design where I've got this unique unit, this finite unit of stuff that I can do in a very short period of time and I know what it all looks like. And then all of these things can be put together for the final project. But this thing has value and I've got a big green check mark with a gold star by it at the end of the week. I've done something. And that's really important for people, for human beings. It is. So I've just assigned you to a really big project. You have no idea how you're going to approach it. How do you estimate that? Oh, estimating. So I'm sure you've seen on Twitter the whole hashtag no more estimates stuff. Yes. I don't agree with that because while it sounds good in theory and works on a whiteboard, that's not how businesses operate. Mm -hmm. Businesses have to make estimates to be a business. So kind of have to make estimates. My view has always been to give an estimate range and don't make it too narrow, but say, look, I think I can have this project done in two to four weeks. Okay, or so you're going weeks. You're not doing t-shirt sizes. Or, or well, yeah. Or I mean, if time is what, you, you know, I can do it in two sprints at work. Uh-huh. We usually do it per sprint. Okay. This will take me a sprint or two sprints. If it's going to take you more than two sprints, it's probably too big a project. We need to slice it up in smaller bits. Creston, how do you handle that with client requests? Well, I hate to say it, but it's easy because I break down and I do the estimate and I say, the worst case is this, the base case is this, and it's just between them. But what I was going to interject is that I was actually in charge of a year 2000 project two decades ago to convert (laughs) a system from yeah i'm pretty old so you need to convert a system from two digits so that it would support a four digit year and in that capacity i was only the project manager i didn't know any of the background of the business since i didn't know any programming and i basically had to just walk into the room and say okay we got to get this stuff done. What do we need to do to get it done? So I literally had to ask questions and it was the people that were doing the work that said, well, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. I was like, okay, great. So you said, we need to do this. How long is it going to take you to do that? They're like, well, you're going to do it. So tell me how long is it? So I had no knowledge. I couldn't do any estimated save myself from out of a paper bag. So the most important thing is to whoever's doing the work needs to come up with the estimate, of course. So... As someone who learned to code after they were a product manager, I will tell you, it is incredible 
the abilities that you take on when you become technical. And I know everyone focuses on the coding and you're going to get a great job, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the respect that you get when you're talking cross-functionally around things like estimates, because it's so easy for someone who doesn't know anything technically to just be like, oh, that's just a front end change. That's nothing. We can do that today. When you know on the technical front that an API needs to change, something needs to be versioned, something needs to be submitted to the Apple store, my God. So it's just like, once you have that technical expertise to be able to nail those estimates, it really is helpful. But I agree with Chris going back on the, you know, there isn't a magical tool. I haven't been able to figure out estimates yet. So if anybody's watching this and wants to send me insight, I'm here for it. I mean, estimates are really hard to do for technical things, for for this kind of stuff. And one of the things that a lot of engineers forget to do is build in the slop time because what slop time. So, yeah, I can do this thing in four hours. So I'm going to say half a day for this. Well, yeah. yeah, So I can get my initial coding done in four hours. Yes. And then I have to test it and debug it and send it to QA and get it back and forgot about this edge case. And so you got to remember to build the slop time in. And then oh, I estimates are always at least three times. Yeah. A lot of developers, especially newer ones, forget about that because they're trying to be as accurate as they can. Well, you Mm -hmm. just you can't. Well, but that therein comes the project manager or the person in charge because they need to know which developer is going to pad it maybe excessively, which is going to be a little bit short. And you can have an interaction with that developer when they give you an estimate. It's like, all right, so then you can ask questions. So have you thought about this case or that, you know, it needs to go through QA or that, is it really going to take this long? So I don't know, but I still just to go to the source of who's ever doing it and get their estimate, but no, it's not, that doesn't mean it's going to be accurate. And then different people are going to have be short mostly or long mostly, and then you can adjust to give it an estimate. Chris, and that's so insightful because you're right. Everybody has a personality and everyone's going to pad it differently. And it's also a good point too, that like I have developers who know the code base really well, and they're going to give me accurate estimates and they're going to get the work done really quickly. And I have to stop myself from assigning them all the work Yeah, you yep. because otherwise you're never going to multiply But then other people aren't going to learn. Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're going to not build those future examples. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about retention, but things happen. You have to find those projects where you can add in additional slop time. Sounds so funny. We need a prettier word, (laughs) (laughs) but we need those projects where you can add in that time for learning as well, because mistakes are going to be made, but it's the only way that the, those developers are going to learn. So it might be pairing with those tried and true developers that can get things done. really That's the way to better estimates. Yep. You know what? The other thing too is the developer who's learning have them run all the documentation or run all the API changes because that has seemed to be the most effective for, thing for me to get people to learn different parts of the code base without really getting in there. Yeah. Yeah. And we had talked about having an episode on project management personas or developer personas because, again, everyone's different. And because I swear there was a person I worked with on this project 20 years ago that they were the uh, Star Trek Scotty. So basically I said, okay, we need to have this thing done. And he's like, are you serious? That can't be done. That's going to take two months, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm like, okay, well, we need to do it. Like, okay, it's going to take a while. And then like a day later, okay, here it's done. Because Scotty was always like, I can't do it, Captain. It's going to take forever. And then suddenly, oh, no, yeah, yeah, it's fixed. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I will say I play that game sometimes, but I play that game through account management and our customers because like a customer will make like a very like outlandish request and I'll push back and say like, I need to be given a deadline for this. I'm like, maybe two weeks out and then we'll come through and do it within a day. But that's just to teach the customer that like, our time needs to be slotted in, but within the team, you can't be doing, you can't be pulling. And, but with this, with this particular person, it actually wasn't, it, that's just 
There, that funny. was her behavior. The gut reaction is, oh, God, this is going to be a horrible mountain climb. And then you look and then at it and go, she gets hmm, into and so it's like, oh, but it's like me and coding. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to do this thing. How am I going to do this? I go into it and I'm like, and then I do the commit. I'm like, two lines. This thing I thought was going to take forever. I just committed two lines of code changes and it's done. Those things just happen to me way too frequently. But going back to something you said, I was going to bring this up, but with estimates, what I've found is one of the best ways to improve estimating in your team is to use pair programming. Say, I want you two to go find out what the estimate for this is. And you pair a junior programmer with a senior programmer because they start learning. And because the junior programmer will ask a lot of questions, well, what about this? Because the senior programmer knows all this stuff and has a good concept of the code base and has a general idea about how long this is going to take as soon as you ask them because of experience. Mm -hmm. The junior programmer is going to start asking questions and make the senior programmer think about edge cases. Senior programmer is going to teach the junior programmer how to estimate better and what kind of things you have to think about. No one reads requirements better than junior programmers. Exactly. Go to bat for that. Like they overanalyze every single sentence and I love them for it. Oh, I value that highly. When you've been doing this long enough and you've got enough experience, you start saying, okay, I know how exactly how to do this. Boom. I'm done. Next thing, please. And you don't sit there and analyze it and say, okay, well, what about this edge case? What about this edge case? But if you get a junior person sitting next to you going, well, wait, how does that work? Can you explain that to me? And you have to start explaining things. You go, oh, 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 yeah, I didn't think about that. My favorite tickets that come back to me is when a junior and a senior have worked on something and then I get a message from the junior and they go, we wanted to double check why we're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm like, "Uh, let me double check. Let me make sure that this is absolutely necessary. But I did want to ask a question. So we keep talking about project managers. It's been a while since I've worked with a project manager. So who is a project manager? Is the product manager the project manager? Or is the engineering manager the project manager? Who's the project manager? (laughs) I mean, that's kind of a gray line. See, on my teams, the product manager is the project manager. They're making the project decisions for the product because they're interfacing with the customers and they're the ones sitting between the customer layer and the engineering layer. So they have to do all that translation and negotiation and time management stuff. So they really are. Well, my product manager actually is, but that's uncommon. She can write code and she can talk to customers. So. Well, no, she sounds that's, like a delight. Oh, she's great because <laughs> I don't have to translate from programmeries yeah. to English. Mm-hmm. So that's really good. And things happen a lot faster. But I've been a project manager and I'm purely a technical person. I've had to talk to customers because get into project management. That's just part of the thing. Mm-hmm. But my background is all technical. So the engineering managers can also be project managers. It depends on kind of how the things are structured. But I've seen them both. I've been one of them. So, and then Creston's just all the things all the time. So we've already defined that. <laughs> he gets all the hats. Well, I mean, I mean, as someone who is responsible for completing the project is the project manager. I mean, that project could be enhancing the product, or maybe if the engineering lead is responsible for implementing a particular feature, okay, he's the project manager of that particular objective. So I guess I don't label it or worry about labels too much with regard to that. Well, and I think too, the smaller the team size, the less defined project manager really is because you have to spread more hats around. So when you've got 30 people working on a project, you have the ability to have a project manager and that's all they do. When you've got five people working on one, you don't have that luxury. You may have a project manager, but they're doing a lot of other stuff too. Yeah, they don't have that title, but essentially it's the manager whomever is coordinating them for the project. They're essentially managing the staff to achieve whatever the goal is. Right. I think that's something that I've kind of struggled with is because to some people, a project manager is a title and a role, but 
to me, in most of the companies that I've worked at, it's an attribute of somebody. And I need to do a better job of saying like, we're starting off this project and you might think I'm the project manager, but we're actually going to allocate someone else as the project manager because I'm secretly the project manager of three other projects. So really trying to spread that wealth out. The kind of allegory I've always had, my dad was in the Navy. And so this always made sense to me. Captain in the Navy is an actual rank, but the captain of a ship may not actually be a captain. Okay. So it's both a position and a title. And that's kind of how project managers work. It kind of depends on where you are and what your situation is as to whether it's your title or just your position. I've always looked at team as everybody is equal. I just happen to have this role in the team. I don't look at it as management. I look at it as I'm just this role. Such a good point. Even today, one of my junior developers asked me if they had the permission to assign a ticket to a senior, if they were in charge of watching over the intake for that week. And I was like, we're all equal here. You just need to find somebody who can solve the problem, but you are empowered to, to give that ticket I don't want any title funniness at any given point. Nobody's time is more valuable. Right. So I I like that insight a lot. That's a real struggle for, I think, a lot of new project managers because they're given this title and told you have this responsibility of project management and the word management kind of carries some baggage with it. And so you come in and saying, okay, I have to manage things. And really what you're doing is just, I'm taking a different position in the group and my responsibilities to the group are just different than they used to be. Now I'm more in charge of getting things out of the way than I am banging on a keyboard. That's a good point because I have developers that are very, very firmly in the camp that they will stay as individual contributors and go up that ladder And I'm so grateful that we have the space to do that nowadays because that was really hard. It used to be really hard to be that way. And so you're right though, they hear the word manager and they're like, no, 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 no. This is not what I signed up for. And it's like, actually, in order to be a really great individual contributor, you need to have some project management skills. Yeah. And I think a lot of people conflate management and leadership, but those are two completely different things. I've had junior programmers on my team that are fantastic leaders of the team. Mm -hmm. They don't have a management position, but they are great leaders. I have those too. Yeah. And that's very different things. And I think newer project managers tend to conflate those things and think that they're equal, but they're not. That and learning how to delegate, I think, are the two biggest things I had problems with when I was learning how to be a project manager. Delegation is really difficult. Really hard. (laughs) If anyone can crack that secret too, like, please send me a DM. Right. For sure. Yeah, because letting go of the control of things that you know you can do, letting somebody else do it so that they can learn is like, oh, I'm taking my headphones off. (laughs) (laughs) The hard truths. (laughs) Yeah. Project management. I mean, it's just even hard to define what that is. Agreed. It's an opinion in many different ways. Yeah. So, oh, my goodness. I've been having so much fun talking to you. I completely lost track of how much of your time we're taking up. Oh, you're good. I'm glad I could be charming. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Oh, yeah. It was a blast. We will definitely want to have you back. Trying to get loads of people on here, but you were very much fun to have on. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time. Welcome. Thank you to everyone who was on the chat. I super appreciate it. Anyone who's watching this, I appreciate all of you. And I definitely have a list of guests that I would love to suggest to you all. Absolutely. And until next time, happy programming. Happy programming. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.